0: There is only one question that matters. Do you swear on your life that what you say is true? My father told me my life would be blessed with good fortune. I'm married.
1: Welcome to the Extra Credits Podcast, a research for meaning in your favorite movies and shows. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. Today, we're talking about one of our favorite films from 2021, Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. And today, we have two special guests joining us. These guys are my personal favorite source of movie news and are both incredibly thorough and hilarious in how they analyze movies. They are also Potterheads like us, so we're going to need to clear out <laughs> and talk about HP and Hogwarts Legacy at the end of this episode, I think. <laughs> Shout out to all my Gryffindors out there. <laughs> Today, we're joined by James and Anthony from Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Thanks for coming on, guys.
2: Thanks for having us. You guys came on our show, and we had such a fun time when we did our episode. And, of course, we had to return the favor and come on your show as well. And we got—I'm a Ravenclaw, so Ravenclaw in the house. Slithering over here. Same. <laughs> yes, yes. See? <laughs> <laughs> and um, 2020, 2021, it was an interesting year for movies because— not only The Last Duel came out, but uh, Nightmare Alley, Guillermo del Toro's film, came out as well. And those were two of my favorite films that year. And interestingly, both films, did uh, they underperformed at the box office and got good critical reviews, but kind of flew under the radar. And they both have a lot in common. And this film in particular, I really adored. I've seen it three times now, and I think it's one of Ridley Scott's best, and I can't wait to talk about it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, 2021 was actually, I think, underrated at this point because a lot of people talked about last year as being kind of the COVID year, the pandemic year. We had a lot of movies pushed, but we had some really great ones. Like Remember Worst Person in the World? Yeah. Like, we had some, mm. a lot of things to talk about last year. So let's talk about Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. I want to start off by asking you guys a little bit about your relationship to historical dramas and epics because this movie feels like it's multi genre in the way that it plays with, with its themes and kind of plays between historical movies. James Anthony, do you guys have any favorite historical dramas or epics that come to mind when you think about that genre?
2: Gladiator, hands down, it's Mm -hmm. one of my all-time favorite movies. Obviously, Ridley Scott made that as well. And he kind of has a little bit of a niche besides sci-fi. He works in historical dramas pretty often as well. I mean, American Gangster is kind of a historical genre as well. Um, is drama as well as yeah. kingdom of heaven for sure. So he, he loves working in that genre and gladiator, I think is excellence. One of my all time favorites. He won best picture for that. I think he won best director, director as well. Yeah. And I mean, this movie just takes all the elements that he was using for gladiator and infusing into this film with the authenticity, historical accuracy, and just making us feel real and making it for a modern audience And I think Gladiator is my favorite. Other ones that come to my mind personally, Schindler's List is excellent. 12 Years a Slave is excellent. Master and Commander. And also Apocalypto kind of, you could say, is a historical drama. Yeah, I love the historical drama genre, especially with ancient cultures. And uh, Master and Commander Mm -hmm. is a really underrated one as well um, with Russell Crowe. But Ben-Hur is a big one for me. Cleopatra is great uh spartacus Kubrick's spartacus i think is really amazing gladiator i would say is my favorite Uh, kingdom of heaven is uh, fantastic and i just love how the filmmakers are able to build these amazing worlds and they have they can build these gorgeous sets and costumes and the production design it really transports you into another world and it's the it's this thing where it's like you can compare it to a sci-fi film where it's like a futuristic or designed to something but it's it's just historical and it's so we're just as far removed from it as well you know i mean from ancient rome but it's just really fascinating to me to look back on ancient cultures and really see that like people lived like this and um, i think it's a fascinating thing to see the evolution of uh, of humanity and of civilizations and there's just such uh, amazing room for storytelling in those worlds that i think that really scott has tapped into in an amazing way with some of his films
3: yeah, I feel like I, I grew up watching a lot of, you know, epics uh, on, on TV, and you can, like, come in at any point and just enjoy the movie, um, you know, like, Braveheart or The Patriot, I feel like we're on, you know, TNT like reruns all the time. (laughs) Yeah, Um, And I also just, yeah. Yeah. And I love the the structure too of like historical epics. I just like the character building. Like, I think that's some of my favorite things about movies in general is just watching characters develop. And then also like you talked about, like kind of the stakes of history within the movie. Um, And if anyone hasn't seen the the woman king from this year i think that's a movie that a lot of people are sleeping on and actually takes the historical epic structure um but in for me, at least, it was almost like more meaningful because uh, it was a story really about like woman and their connection and looking at the historical stakes, even from like the layers um, of, of the characters there. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of great ones that you all said, but I just want to also shout out The Woman King if anyone hasn't seen it.
1: Yeah. And you call that like an evolution of the epic. And I think that's right, because a lot of epics do tend to follow a traditional mold or there have been a specific couple directors who make a lot of them. Like, I think it's notable that a lot of the movies that all three of you shared, I also find fascinating as epics and I think it's really notable that Ridley Scott had directed like three or four of them that you both noted so that's why I think we're talking about The Last Duel today. I always find it fascinating every time you get an epic in people's relationship to it because I find that either they're going to blow up and do really well or everybody kind of doesn't go watch it in theaters and it doesn't do super well and then everybody kind of creates this almost like cult group around a movie and the Northman comes to mind, and Robert Eggers. Are you guys Eggers heads or did Yo, you guys like time. Northman? Big time, big time, love them. Uh, one of the most underrated movies this year and Robert Eggers is one of our best young directors working and I feel like they kind of had a similar fate as The Last Duel, which is unfortunate. So I am kind of worried about epics moving forward. I know The Woman King made money and it's getting nominated for awards and it's excellent, um, but I am a, a little bit worried because this movie didn't do super well financially. But what's interesting about The Last Duel is it kind of acts like, it has like elements of a courtroom procedural at times. Like yeah. a, I guess we just watched a few good men recently and, and made me think of that in a couple moments. Mm-hmm. And there are then like Epic battle scenes within 15 minutes of that and incredibly tragic scenes, 15 minutes after that. And then it, that multi-genre element coming into this story makes it really powerful and thematically complex. And it just makes it really obvious that Ridley Scott is great at making movies. That's something that seems pretty clear even at his, <laughs> at his age And speaking of Ridley Scott, what is y'all's relationship to Scott? Do you guys have a piece of his filmography you keep coming back to, aside from Gladiator
2: or the ones you mentioned? Oh yeah, I've been a big Ridley Scott fan since I was a teenager. Years. I mean, we grew up um, obviously watching Alien and Gladiator and stuff, but then as we got older, Mm -hmm. like I would, I watched basically his entire filmography and he's he's really does have an incredible range as a filmmaker and storyteller to go from like delma and Luis to an crazy incredible sci-fi epic to a historical drama to like a comedy with matchstick men um his range as as a filmmaker is really impressive and even to this day uh with the last duel you you see that he still has so much uh to put into the craft of cinema and just being an expert of directing uh, i think he's just phenomenal I've seen many of his movies um probably over 20 times I would say Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator in particular. Yeah. I've seen them all over 20 times and he's very important to me as uh, a film lover and also as a storyteller myself. I think that he's really one of the greatest of all time and has left uh an indelible mark in cinema history. Yeah, it's great great way to put it. You know, The Blade Runner is one of the most influential films in sci-fi history and you know the first yes. time I watched that, I remember that was one of those movies in my teens that changed my perspective on film and stories. And a lot of people yeah. talk about Ridley Scott as being like out of his prime and he's kind of old. And one of these directors that is he is he directing at too old of an age. And when you watch movies like The Last Duel, which was phenomenal, one of the most unrated movies the last few years that no one's talking about. I mean, also The Martian is incredible and he hits every single genre. Yeah. Not all of his movies are huge hits. Not all of them people see. Not all of them are amazing but he knows how to direct. He knows how to make a mu- movie. His execution is phenomenal. He's He loves making epics. I mean, American Gangster, that is also an epic. That's an epically long movie very good and movie. also an epic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's something about Ridley where he's still got it Like to this day. Same thing with Spielberg. I saw The Fablemans a couple weeks ago. I left the theater and like, Spielberg still got it. And we talked about yeah. um, what he made, uh, the musical he made a few years ago. I'm blanking on it. Um, West oh, oh, Side Story. West Side Story. Yeah. We were talking about that on, on our yeah. episode you guys were on how he still has it after making that. But, like, some of these directors, sometimes they age out, but sometimes they don't. I think Ridley is still not at the top of his game, but he's still making incredible films. And he's one of our all-time—like, he's in my probably top ten favorite of directors of all time, just because of a handful of movies that he's made, like Alien— and gladiator those two alone in my filmography are just so near and dear to me both in my top 10 possibly top 20 movies for sure and he's just left a huge mark on me and the movies i love and why i love sci-fi why i love historical epics like this we actually just watched gladiator the other day and we were like for the 30th time still holds <laughs> it's incredible. up we watched it with friends and yeah. we were like we were all just awestruck watching the opening scene like the filmmaking of that is just so yeah. profound I love Joaquin Phoenix in that too, kind of an underrated
1: performance. Oh yeah, I um, Ridley Scott is weirdly like, and we talked about this on your Steven Spielberg pod, so listeners go check out that on the Raiders channel, but. Ridley to me is like grumpy Steven Spielberg and I, and I think I'm just getting more cynical as I get older and so I'm just like more interested in what he's putting out than most directors right now so I agree he's like in my top five favorite directors Alien is one of my favorite films of all time I loved everything you said about Blade Runner it changed the landscape of science fiction films for good. And I'm heavily invested in that science fiction bag that like Ridley Scott keeps pulling out of. And this might be a hot take outside of like any longtime listener, but I think Prometheus is probably a technical masterpiece of the 21st century. And I think that kind of changed the way science fiction movies look today. I don't think we'd probably love the aesthetic of Dune if it wasn't for Prometheus. So Ridley Scott's still putting out like underrated movies, I feel like every four or five years, even if there are some that, you know, kind of just don't make it, I guess, to the, the modern moviegoers. There are always something. there's always something to come back to in all of his movies. So I, I like to think of him even with like the Christopher Nolans when it comes to science fiction, and I love that about his and his movies. Even like his film language is something I like to keep coming back to because he does play with similar themes in every every mm-hmm. movie. Do you have a specific one you like to come back to?
3: Uh I mean, obviously like I think Alien, Blade Runner are great. Um yeah. and I think I heard you all on a different pod say that you were fans of Prometheus, which is cool. Yeah. I think, yeah, I love it. You know, yeah. underrated. Um, but yeah, I think similar to what you said, I think I really like, uh, kind of the darkness of his movies. I guess there are, there are themes that are touching on current events, but also we talked about in our Prometheus pod that we did, um, the idea of this kind of like cynical vibe he has and, um, David even like representing this idea of like, how humans are manipulating like resources, and he has like a really um, interesting specific lens uh, that that shows up in all of his movies. Even though his stories are all really what, what different. makes so. a,
4: a good story is a good yarn. Uh, you know, frequently you can get mired and 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 uh, uh, get stuck in your own sludge with getting too intellectual. I think if you can tell the story what this film is about in more or less 30 seconds or a minute, less than a minute, then you've probably got something because everything else after that is enlargement. This film is about boom. And uh, it can be just a straight action adventure, but it's always better if it's character driven. So I'm nearly always looking for very strong characters. And the more I looked, because I was very visual, I was born blessed with a bit of an eye. I've got a very good eye. It was a natural thing for me, that. So my te- my material tend to be very visual. I was always criticized for being so visual till I realized that actually it's an advantage because we aren't actually dealing in pictures, dude, right? So I was always getting criticized by the critics. And I said, well, uh, hang on, it's not a radio play. We're actually dealing in pictures. So if the picture's a narrative, uh, that's good, right? Some of the greatest films been tend to be more visual than wordy. You know, everything that you know now is my own personal experience. So, and I'm a different animal to, you know, Pete, Fred, you know, Alan, whoever. We're all different uh, human beings and therefore I react to things in different, different ways. So there's nothing, there's no generic learning process. The one learning process is to get a camera, go do it. There's no excuse right now where you don't need to, you don't need to, You haven't got celluloid running through that. You can organize three buddies this weekend, go off and make a goddamn movie. The first requirement of anybody to do this job is inordinate stamina, is stamina. If you ain't got stamina, don't do it. You gotta drive the bus, you have to lead the way. That's the term direction, that's what it's about. If you're a nervous ninny, don't do it. If you can't thrive on stress, don't do it, okay? Because you gotta be, you gotta embrace Stress, stress for me is being inactive. I get very stressed if I'm not working. If I'm working and it's coming every direction, I'm completely relaxed. I think um, also authority is terribly important. So even if you're pretending that you know what you're doing at the beginning, try to pretend properly.
1: And I, I love that Ridley, in a weird way, Is kind of like a history buff of directors he's interested in characters representing concepts throughout history that we find as a through line and motivations rather than you know at a fault in certain places being like fully realized characters like he kind of it's not for everyone. He's one of my favorite directors for that reason. And I don't think probably filmmakers get enough credit for establishing a specific film language that you buy into pretty early. Like, you know, when you sit down for a Ridley Scott movie within five minutes, that's less of a character study and more of like a roundtable about an idea or a concept that he's trying to like gnaw at, which... Again, it's kind of a detriment to his career and also why he's so successful and beloved because some people might view that as pretentious with good intentions and others view yeah. that maybe <laughs> as ambitious with good intentions. And his work, his best work kind of blurs the line between those two. And a, and a great example is The Last Duel*, which I think is one of his best works, which is crazy. My guy's popping out movies like every year, two movies yeah. every, <laughs> so every so year. So prolific. He's, he, he's 85 years old. Yeah. Oh my God, like, I, is he really? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I'm 28 and I like f- tripped walking our dogs this morning. <laughs> like, I, he's he's out here just directing movies all the
2: time. He's on 200 million dollar sets every other year. But yeah, he's, didn't yeah.
3: House of Gucci come out like right uh, yeah, later the same, on this yeah, year, same same. year? Yeah, yeah, the last It's goal. actually
2: it's actually interesting. I can tell you why he's able to do it. He because he's so prolific and he's it's he's making difficult movies to make. Like these are physically difficult films, right? These are huge yeah. films gigantic budgets all over the world, but he still makes them so quickly. And the reason for that is the way Ridley Scott likes to film is with multicam. Uh, Most films will film with one camera at a time, unless it's like a big stunt sequence where they need to get as much coverage as possible. But generally every scene is filmed with one camera. We do this take, we do that take, change the setups, blah, blah, blah. But Ridley Scott will shoot us just a simple dialogue scene um, with eight cameras at once. And that way, he can shoot efficiently and quickly. Yes, the cameras cost a lot of money, but he's actually saving more money because they're doing less shooting days. So if you look at any behind-the-scenes photos of any Ridley Scott set, even for like the most simple of scenes, there will be multiple cameras running at all times. So that he's, he's mm-hmm. actually always under budget and ahead of schedule, which is a rarity for even just making a small film, but he manages to do that with the biggest productions in the world, which is why he's able to make so many films so quickly and also keeps getting budgets for films, these massive budgets for films, because studios can trust that he'll stay under budget. Yeah, and his editors
1: are listening to this podcast right now being like, yeah, he does use a lot of cameras. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of footage to watch. Um, I'm sure it is difficult. You can feel that in the battle scenes, which he's so great at shooting in The Last Duel, which we should probably just get into it. I immediately thought when I saw The Last Duel that really did it again, people are going to love this movie. It's going to win all the awards. We were seeing it at a pretty bad time in the pandemic, about a year plus ago, whenever that was around October. And I remember thinking, okay, this is going to hit the awards circuit. It's going to be a financial success. And some critics liked it. Audience members seemed to like it. Uh, Letterboxd reviews are pretty good because I like to shout out out them. Um, But ultimately, people were... I don't know exactly what they were out on, but the movie lost almost like $100 million. Yeah. And it wasn't nominated for any notable awards, which I love that you guys picked this movie to come on here and talk about and give extra credit to. So we definitely want to hear why specifically you do that did that, which I'm assuming has a lot to do with this kind of lack of financial success. But, you know, I've heard Ben Affleck and Ridley Scott talk in interviews about how the state of movies right now is reflected on the lack of success in The Last Duel. And that could be true, but it also could be maybe the way people were talking about this movie at the time and um, maybe kind of dismissing it to be something that it's not. Like there was a conversation going around that why are we still making movies about believing women? It's like, yes, we know we should believe women. Like we don't need any movies like this. They're not really telling us anything. They're too straightforward. And I think some critics ran with that message too, which is like incredibly reductive, which we're going to get into today. And uh, if anything, probably won't age well. And so I, I'm just really surprised about the lack of money this movie made. I'm surprised that the Academy didn't recognize it. James Anthony, did you
2: guys, were you guys surprised about the the lack of a reaction to The Last Duel? Yeah, I had the same exact reaction when we left the theater. We both were like, oh my God, that movie was incredible. Ridley still has it. But yeah. it blew me away. I went in with pretty good expectations because it's Ridley. We have Matt and Ben coming back, working together on a movie that they co-wrote. Um, with a third screenwriter and then we have an incredible cast. Hall uh, of Center was the uh, third screenwriter and interesting storytelling and every, every element of this film is phenomenal. The directing, the acting, the, the writing, the production design, the wardrobes, the sets. The execution, the editing, it's a complex story to tell because you're telling kind of the same story three times in three different acts from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. So it's a very nuanced performance for our three main characters, Jacques, Jean, and uh, Marguerite. They're all terrific performers with Jody, Ben, and Matt. Just little nuances because each perspective is changed with who's telling the story and who's telling the truth at the time and the final truth in the third act of the film. And so it's just a really clever film complicated storytelling that i think they really nailed and i was just flabbergasted that no one wanted to see this movie but i think that it was probably something to do with marketing the trailer is solid obviously yeah. anything ridley comes out with we're gonna go see anything matt and Benin, obviously we're from boston we're huge fans right. of those guys we're gonna go see <laughs> that you know goodwill hunting was basically our life just kidding <laughs> so, so no matter what we were gonna see the last duel but the trailer i think it, hurt, it shot itself in the foot in a lot of ways because it doesn't show many elements of the film that I love, like the humor that's infused in it, the performance from Ben Affleck that he just has like a, a stern-looking face in one shot in the trailer, but his character, Pierre, is so fascinating and interesting, and yeah. I've never seen Ben any, do anything like that, and there are so many things in the movie that I think they could have put in the trailer to make it more enticing for audiences to go see so I think that's not like the, the content of the film, but I think really the trailer and marketing really hurt this movie's performance. Yeah, I agree. I think the film, I don't think the film would have made its money back because it was a massive $90 million budget, I believe. Because mm-hmm. uh, first of all, I totally agree. We were talking about that after we saw the film. We were, we were surprised by Ben Affleck's charisma and humorous performance, which added a lot of levity to the film and really a new color to the film that we weren't expecting. And he was just terrific. Whereas from the trailer, people were just making fun of his blonde hair from that one shot he was in. But if you watch the character, right. you're like, oh, the, the blonde hair totally works. It, it suits the character. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I remember the trailer coming out and on comment sections, people were just making fun of his his ch- his chin hair and the blonde hair. And I was like, oh, yeah. you, do, you don't know what the character's like. So I think they missed an opportunity of showing the humor of that character, which could have sh- made on- audiences more interesting. i like, oh, this is also a fun In a way, a fun and entertaining movie as well as being a dark historical epic. But I also think that the epic, historical, especially Swords and Sandals, you could say that genre, um, uh, ancient warfare, I think that it's done at the box office for the future. I don't see that kind of film performing well anymore. It doesn't seem like it's something modern audiences want. There is still an appetite for that kind of film, obviously us for. And I think older crowds and some young people, we we have some younger fans who like films like this, but in terms of mm-hmm. performing well at the box office, when you're competing with the giant corporations who are making, you know, the popcorn flicks that come out every month, you're going to factor in that the average person going to the theaters, the average American goes to the theater maybe five or six times a year. Right now they're choosing mostly um, like a Marvel movie, a Disney movie, um, a DC movie, uh, These these large scale like entertainment value movies to just like escape. And I think the audiences, unfortunately, are choosing less challenging films to go see and yeah and I wasn't surprised by the box office being low but I was shocked by the lack of recognition for critical acclaim and awards not a single globe mm-hmm. or Oscar yeah. nomination not even for even for Jodie Comer who is the best performance of the year in the entire 2021 in my opinion for any actor or actress as well as production design wardrobe not a single nomination for anybody I was shocked yeah and I thought this was a shoe in for best adapted screenplay because I thought the Me script too. I thought it was the yeah. best script that year and it's adapted, so it couldn't have won an original screenplay. But I thought, without a doubt, it was going to win the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay because I thought it was absolutely sensational, really nuanced, really detailed, um, and just so um, layered with incredible beats and moments and terrific character development. And then you throw in excellent action set pieces on top of that. For me, it's everything right. I like to see in this kind of movie and hit every beat that I love. I thought it was guaranteed to win. Also, costume design was terrific. Production design was amazing. The cinematography was really phenomenal. And also, I think the editing was uh, the best that year as well. And the editor should have, I think, at least gotten nominated, but she didn't either.
3: Yeah. And like you said, it's something that's really hard to pull off, I think. Um, But we just watched it last night, and it's still amazing. You know, it it was so good. But should we talk a little bit about the pre-production?
1: Yeah, we'll get into the pre-production. I want to talk about the novel, but I do want to note one uh, historical drama that did kind of blow up and I think, younger crowds, which does give me hope, is The King from Netflix oh, from a few true. years ago. Yeah, uh, Timmy's going to save us all. Yeah, Timmy Chalamet is here for us all, so maybe <laughs> he, can, he can bring us out of it. He just needs to do another cu- couple historical but, but, dramas. But I would
2: say if that came out in theaters, that would have bombed as well. In theater. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. And that's you're an excellent right. movie. Yeah. I love The King. Yeah. That's such an underrated movie. But, but I don't think pe- the yeah. people who watched it on Netflix would have left their homes to go to the theater and buy a ticket for it. Yeah, it's
1: tough. Um, Okay, before we get into the cast and crew and some characters, I want to talk quickly about the 2004 historical novel that this adapted screenplay that you both were talking about was uh, made off of. So, Eric Jagger is an English professor that specializes in medieval literature at UCLA, and he wrote this 2004 historical novel off the same name, The Last Duel. And he was inspired to write this book by reading over how in the early 14th century, duels were starting to be outlawed as a method to decide a court case when a decision couldn't be made by a jury or a judge. And in this case, between Carrouge and Legree, they found that there were tons of unverified claims and undermined, uh, messaging about Marguerite's testimony from people throughout the 20th century who were writing about this case. And there were basically random pseudo historians with ulterior motives trying to undermine Marguerite and tarnish her reputation, like 500, 600 years after this all happened for basically no reason. Um, probably misogyny. And so he went back, this professor, and searched for the primary sources and found that her testimony was kept by parliament. And he went through all these sources, transcribed it from a ton of different languages because they were sent around different countries. And he basically made this script off of this story. And it was clear to him that Marguerite was telling this the truth and she was a survivor of sexual assault. And he thought she had more than enough evidence to win the case. But ultimately, women at the time were treated as property and less than human. So he thought he could hopefully right some of these wrongs committed by these bad faith pseudo-historians in the 20th century who had tried like dismissing Marguerite and like a ton of historical essays. And he wrote the novel, The Last Duel. So if anyone's interested in that, in our podcast description, I'll link a conversation from a show called the medieval podcast who features Jagger as a guest. And he gives incredible context of what life was like as a woman during medieval Europe and how women of every social class were treated and how truly accurate this adapted screenplay is, which is an incredible screenplay. And I agree with you. It should have been nominated for adapted. And I can't believe it didn't. Nicole Hofcenter does an incredible job and I think she probably doesn't get the credit she deserves because Matt Damon is Matt Damon and Ben Affleck is Ben Affleck <laughs> yeah. and so it's kind of hard to compete against those guys. She wrote most of Marguerite's chapter I think and she kind of put that together and they uh, brought her on because first off there were some critiques that two guys were writing that script and maybe mm-hmm. they should have brought more of a woman lens onto it and so they got Hoff Center and she was more than willing to do it and she and that's probably the best chapter of the movie the third chapter in terms of like giving the most insight to the story and was the most well made
3: well uh, really quick I just want to say uh for the the novel I think that's really cool I uh didn't look that he basically like rewrote uh the historical pieces in Mm -hmm. a narrative because I mean that's why we love movies so much and that's why we love storytelling so much because you're able to uh, really understand like historical issues and how they relate to contemporary issues through stories where, you know, no one's going to go back and like go through archives of uh, a specific uh, 14th century uh, court case. So, right. um, that's awesome, uh, that you looked into that cause Shout I haven't the read the, the novel. The yeah. Shout out the teachers. <laughs> yeah. Um, but besides the, the novel and, um, I know you all talked a lot about how, you know, great the movie is as far as like the set pieces. And, um, I want to talk about the hair, like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh
2: my God, the, lovely, good. you
3: all already talked hair. about, you know, the, the Ben Affleck, like bleached hair, um, the Matt Damon mullet. You yeah,
1: know? he uh, was on that <laughs> mullet before. Everybody's bringing the mullet back now. But Matt Damon was on it a couple of years ago. Yeah, <laughs> it, su- it suits the character yeah.
2: so well. Yeah, it yeah. really does.
3: Um, and then Adam Driver just looking like he like has a leave-in hair conditioner method. You know, in the the 1300s. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what
1: the 1300s like gel is. I don't know what kind of Rogaine they're using back then. But he's like growing that every. So much every, Like every time I saw him. Yeah, it's so like a L'Oreal commercial. Was, like, it was so for much nights. longer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's I love the hair, James Anthony. Anything you guys uh, found that stood out about the editing, cinematography, is there any person or any kind of like anything you kept coming back
2: to in the movie? where We're like, wow, technically this is a special film. I think it's just really for me mostly the writing because it's a really complex story to tell. It the same kind of story three different ways, and every act. So the first act, were obviously from Jean's point of view and in his perspective. Every, the first two characters, Jean and Jacques, and their in their acts, they're you know. We're seeing objective truth from everybody, but they're embellishing themselves so much. It's very similar to Akira Kurosawa's Roshaman, where we have four perspectives. Everyone's kind of embellishing themselves. You don't know who's telling the truth, and that's clearly an influence on this film. But I think that just the writing is so specific and detailed and nuanced where just little, like you said, little character beats that are slightly changed to where – you know, Jacques says that he saved Jean's lives, but then Jean says he saved mm-hmm. Jacques' life. And and Jacques said, uh, "We all need to get together. We, the king, needs our support right now for the king." And then Jean says yeah. the same thing, but Jean's <laughs> perspective is, "I said for the king." And from their perspectives, from Jean's perspective, he's such a a loving and doting husband. His wife loves him. He treats mm-hmm. her with so much respect. But then we see the truth from from marguerite's perspective and he's a monster he's cold he's callous he's distant he he abuses her even after she admits the sexual assault and abuse that happened to her that week before and he's just Mm -hmm. a a villain they're both villains and their perspectives are changed so much and really the only kind of static character you could say is pierre and (laughs) he's the only person who doesn't really change from every perspective um and just i think the just seeing like like historical dramas are so important when they're done right right like like Schindler's List, Saving Prior Ryan, because you can read about these things in books, you can read these sentences, but you can't really understand what it feels like to like, understand what it was like to be at Normandy when you're storming the beaches, to understand what it's like to be a woman in this era, to be a piece of property, unless you're watching Marguerite's perspective in the third act of the film and her reality and her truth, you don't understand what it's like for a woman to be in that position. Even someone who has prosperity and wealth, you are still a person's a man's property like she is and it's you can read that in a book you can read a couple sentences like women were a property of men in this era in this time but you you have to i think when you watch a movie that's covering it so well you really truly understand what it's like because you can be put in that person's shoes no matter who you are Mm -hmm. yeah and for the production that really also stood out to me was the the sets Uh, we get these incredible like sets many of them were practical I think if you're going to shoot a film like this, it's better not to build sets inside of a studio warehouse, but to actually go to the real locations, and then the digital cinematography can really take care, take a great use of the natural lighting pouring in through windows. They were able to light quite a bit with candles. Um, Obviously, they'll have candles lit um, practically, and you can see them on screen, but there'll be a light off screen, just adding a little bit of fill where the candle light would be. But they did a phenomenal Mm -hmm. job utilizing sets Every single one of them was really beautiful, especially um, the set where uh, the court case basically was vile. It looked like it, was, it might have been a, a large church and um, really extravagant uh, production design that really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. I loved every location. Uh, the exteriors were fantastic. So I love when films don't build sets but actually shoot at the real locations. You can really see the difference of light pouring on real stone. Also, it affects it affects where they can put the camera and you can tell like, oh, they didn't just put a false wall there and take it down to get better angles. They're really utilizing a real space and trying their best to use the lighting in that in that context. And that, so I really loved the sets of this movie as well.
3: Yeah, I was watching a little bit of the making of uh, The Last Duel on YouTube today. Yeah. <laughs> and Ridley Scott is going through a forest with you know the whole crew. And he sees this stream where one of the battles was and he's like, this is the shot. <laughs> and he's <Yeah>. like, <laughs> just explaining it all to them. And you're right. I think the actual natural locations makes a, a huge difference. And you, you feel it in, in the movie and it, um adds a a real like grounded piece to to the movie
1: and i really loved darius walski's uh here i think the way he uses grays and blues reflects such yeah. a tone and gives such a mood to the audience that i really bought in very quickly there's something so fincher-esque about the way he like sets up his color palette that i really enjoy and it's in the lighting too that you're talking about so i i love the the technical aspects of this movie and obviously the writing is phenomenal
4: A most unspeakable charge has been brought against you.
0: Jacques Legree entered our home. He attacked me.
4: The accusation is false.
3: I am telling the truth.
0: The truth does not matter. There is only the power of men. This should be settled quietly.
4: I am innocent!
0: I request a duel to the death.
4: If you lose, your wife will suffer dire consequences. One of us has lied. Let us let God decide.
0: You do not believe me.
4: I am risking my life for you.
0: You are risking my life so you can save your pride. For bearing false witness Is that you are to be burned Alive I will not be silent
1: Let's jump into the characters Because I want to talk about Matt Damon
3: Yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sir Jean de Carouge
1: Yeah,
2: Carouge
3: (laughs) Yeah, so he has the first chapter and I think, uh, you know, after we watched that, we realized that we were so manipulated Yeah. the, fir- the first time we watch it. Um, I don't know if you all knew the structure going into the movie. I had no idea it traded you. No, no yeah. idea. So no. I didn't know. It was great, no but, but it, just, it gives you yeah. the
1: beats. Yeah. You don't really yeah. So we're
3: watching it as if it's just a normal movie. Right. Like, uh, because I didn't know there were going to be completely three different point of views or three different movies within the movie. Um, so I'm, I'm experiencing this, trying to think about, okay, I'm getting to know Matt Damon's character. And kind of like you said, there's that like strange, abrupt dialogue, like driver. Uh, so frankly saying like, you saved my life today. You know? <laughs> and, like, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, but you understand that it's Damon's memories or her reality of how things happened and that, you know, he's the hero of his own story. And uh, by the way, also stop us too, if we're going to step on extra credits, but, um, but he's, you know, the, the protagonist in his own story. And uh, we end up finding that he like sucks at the end, you know, like he's not supportive of Marguerite. He actually like chokes her right. And demands that they have sex after she tells him that she's raped in the, in the actual reality or truth. And, um, and we're able to like, see that clear distinction between the beginning and end of the movie um, so I thought his character was really interesting to to hear or see his, you know, perspective or reality first. Um, also, because you get the really funny uh, moments where <laughs> in the beginning of the movie, he says, you know, I was angry, but, you know, I spoke well, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and we see yeah, the yeah, reality yeah. later.
1: Yeah, a lot of layers there to his character, because like he on one hand has those moments where I'm sure a lot of. Like older men in the audience were relating to him and thinking Adam Driver's character is the bad guy here. He's the antagonist. Mm-hmm. And maybe trying to relate to Matt Damon a little too much. And by the end of the film, you're kind of like, oh, Yeah, you wow. think
3: it's like a frenemy story or something at first. <laughs> yeah. 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 You can tell
1: yeah. a very self-reflective 85-year-old director put that movie together with Matt Damon's character specifically. Yeah.
2: What's interesting is because I didn't realize they were doing the triptych until the second title card saying the truth according to John Legree came up. Then I was like, in my seat, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be epic. Yeah. Because like you said, yeah. you, you, you thought that LeGree, Adam Driver's character, was the villain. But then we learned by the third yeah. act, they're both the villains of the story. And I think it was really yes. smart to start with Matt Damon and uh, um, John Jack's story because Matt Damon is so likable and uh, uh, just like a favorite actor amongst the population. And he's a very charming guy. And I think it was smart to set the film up with his perspective for that reason and also... I love the the change in character and how it changes and evolves from e- each perspective. I thought that telling the story in this way was honestly really genius and brilliant by the by the writers It gave it its own new its own life in this genre and really set up great character pieces, great character development, and little nuances and uh, we think that he's an honorable man. We think that you know he does right by his wife, but then we learn it's quite the opposite. he's very selfish. he cares more about the dowry than he does marrying her. Um, he's clearly. Mm-hmm. I love how uh, we 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 get hints that he is kind of like not liked too much by others in his in his story. But then we, but mm-hmm. it's more like he feels like a victim of everything around him. But then we learn through uh, the second story that he is stubborn, extremely unlikable, very testy, uh, very uh, erratic and emotional, and takes everything personally. Mm-hmm. And he basically prevents anyone from even want even coming close to liking him. And that's why. The other squires, the other knights don't want anything to do with him. That's why I love this little moment where when he's about to be knighted, all of the soldiers in the background are like chit-chatting because they don't care. And then he has to yell at them oh, to, be, yeah. to be quiet. I thought that that's a, such great little nuanced writing to show that he doesn't have the respect of anyone uh, because he's such a, a testy personality. And also the way that Pierre talks about him is also super revealing. I think that the character work... In each story was so great, and Jean the way he treats Marguerite is so tragic as well because he never cared about Marguerite at all, and really all this duel is to to him an opportunity to seek revenge against Jacques, who's been he's wronged him his entire life. He's had all these instances of jealousy and envy towards Jacques because of his preference by Pierre and the dowry gift that was supposed to be him, that piece of land was given to Jacques because he's his favorite squire and Pierre just wanted to give it to him and he lost it in his dowry. And, you know, he he didn't really take up Marguerite's defense because he was trying to stay true to her and back her. He was doing it, you could see, clearly to just have an excuse for revenge against Jacques and to have a duel against Jacques, which is why he didn't tell Marguerite what could happen to her being burned alive for up to 20 minutes if he lost the duel, obviously he would have told her that if he actually cared about her. He never really cared about her at all. He was he, for him, Marguerite's sexual abuse and sexual assault. He doesn't care about it happening to her. To him, when she confesses this to him, in the truth, in the reality, he takes it as an offense to himself from Jacques versus mm-hmm. something happening, something horrific happening to his wife. So he's a terrible person. Both Jacques and Jean are terrible guys for different reasons. And you know Jean. Seems like a hero in the beginning, but like you said, every story, each each act is perceived differently by the audience. It's just really brilliant fi- uh, film r- filmmaking and writing, and the triptych storytelling audiences got exposed to it with Dunkirk. Same thing with Dunkirk, you couldn't really see that in the trailer until you were watching the movie, and still people needed a second viewing, but when second and third viewings of The Last Duel— it's actually, the first act is really hysterical when you're watching it from Jean's perspective, knowing what he's really like, and all this BS he's saying about his selective memory and his his blind spots that he has. When you're watching the things that he says, it's like, this guy is so full of full of crap. This is all BS. It's almost yeah. comical when you're watching the things that he says. It is funny. And there's one, there's one bit that I found really funny, and it's just it's Matt Damon just being a great physical performer, but just the way he performs the, this act of sex... Yeah. is like he has like one foot like back in the bed and he's like a linebacker like <laughs> and it's just like so unsavory and just unsettling and just like kind of repulsive in a lot of ways uh and when you see that you're just like you when it, it gets better on repeat viewings this is my third time watching the film and that's a little thing that i noticed and i was like you know this character he's he's just he's ridiculous and uh, I do find it quite funny rewatching it, especially the first act versus the his perspective yeah. of his wedding night with with uh, Marguerite, where he's like, "You don't have to worry," and he's supposed to be this yeah, gentleman, exactly, complete opposite, right?
3: Yeah. I think also like the, the idea of the men really being shown to be like clumsy and, and silly and a lot of, uh, purposely like shot, you know, things like we see a lot of Matt, uh, Damon's character, uh, like standing on his tippy toes, you know, like arguing, they're like, there's very purposeful <laughs> shots. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like, let's talk about Jacques, right. Uh, Legree uh, Adam driver's character, where we also see that even though like a lot of these men are like. You know, essentially, like, silly in a lot of these roles and playing these like power games. Like, he is also this, you know, terrifying character because of the power that both Matt Damon's character, but especially Adam Driver's character, um, has. And like, Adam Driver's performance is so great and like so terrifying,
1: unsettling, disturbing, Yeah. yeah.
3: And, um, you know, throughout the movie, especially when we get to his chapter, we just see how delusional he is. Right. And like how this idea of what he calls love or, you know, lust or whatever we want to call it is like completely wrapped up in his own ego, you know, and clearly not even seeing a woman as people, you know, I think something interesting on, on rewatch. You actually pointed it out, Trey, um, when we were watching it last night, when the woman at, at the party, um, this in the second chapter says, I've heard about you at court that's something that Jacques takes as, okay, like people yeah. are talking about me in a positive uh, light. But I think actually that's supposed to tell us the audience that, okay, women are having conversations about how he's actually dangerous, right? And and so I think early on, we even see after Pierre's dinner, uh, the dinner party where men think that everything is consensual and even though the women are constantly constantly saying no. And we get that uh, same kind of thread of the story later on. Um, But you talk like if I, if you
2: run, I'll only catch you that scene. I only chase you. I only chase you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Where we have the same line um, and it's just in a more violent context, but we understand, right. That it's still rape regardless. And I think it's, it's interesting though, because Jacques is kind of like the foil to, um Jean uh, de Cruze, you know Matt Damon's character because he has like wealth and and connection um be- and has friends in high places like Pierre
1: Yeah I find it I find it fascinating that both uh dick rouge and Legree are kind of still coming from these like noble classes but they want you to feel bad for them yeah (laughs) and we're never really given any character that's seriously in poverty obviously uh marguerite is going through like a very traumatic experience but like aside from her character we're never really shown any character going through something that is actually traumatic aside from marguerite and i find that fascinating because well
3: not especially well i except for the other woman you're talking about like the men in general right yeah
1: Yeah. out of the lead characters like legree specifically like and i guess Andy Crouge, they both want you to feel like bad for them in so many different moments (laughs) and i think that's a big part of like ridley scott again like just kind of orchestrating this way to mess with the audience and be subversive and trying to get men watching the movie being like like, okay, these guys aren't that bad. And you're like, no, no, they're terrible. They're terrible people. <laughs> and uh, Adam Driver's performance is very unsettling. It does feel like he has those Kylo Ren elements coming back yeah. <laughs> into like a 1400s, 1300s movie, which is wild. Yeah, the like um, sad
3: boy, fragile, masculine ego. It's yeah. like huge sad boy yeah. energy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I love Le Green in this film because when you see his story, his, his perspective uh, in a lot of ways, he's like the last friend of uh, De Carouge because no one else can stand him. But he's, you know, the former godfather of his, whose uh, son who passed away. But also, mm-hmm. he knows that he's taking advantage of De, uh, De Carouge. By he knows that uh, the land was owed to him, but he still accepted it. Um, he goes to collect money from him, trying to be like a friend of his, but also like I'm, ga- I'm taking money for Pierre, um, and so. I think in a lot of ways he, he uses like this fake friendship with De Carrouge to get what he wants out of De Carrouge in a lot of ways. And if he really was a true friend and really did care about him, he, he wouldn't have taken that land that was meant to be part of Marguerite's dowry. And he probably wouldn't have been as forceful about getting that money that was owed from him, even though because uh, De Carrouge's finances are in trouble and many of his workforce is gone. I think that uh, Legree plays like a fake friend to him really well. And what's interesting about Jacques' perspective is obviously in the first act and in Marguerite's act, and even in Jacques' act, the sexual assault on Marguerite is clearly rape every single time. Uh, Each time Mm -hmm. is different. The third act is obviously the most horrific And even in Jock's perspective, it's clearly rape, and you can tell that he knows he's raping her against her will in this entire sequence, and he holds it until his final breath, saying that he's innocent of the charges. There was no rape. As he's about to have Mm -hmm. the knife kneed into his throat, he's still saying it with his final... By the damnation of hell, there was no rape. I'm innocent of these charges. And when you watch his, his perspective, it's still clearly a sexual assault, and he knows it. However... I think because he views women and Marguerite as well for for Jean Marguerite is property and then for Jacques Marguerite you could look at it as a for him she's a prize to win and mm-hmm. either way in Jacques perspective he determines her feelings about how she's interpreting events. And you could say that even though he was raping her, in his perspective, she's interpreting it not as rape, so that's why he's going to his dying breath as saying that it wasn't rape, even I actually, though it clearly was. I actually disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Jean Legree completely f- believes in his heart that he did not rape her. This is Jacques, Jacques Legree. I'm sorry, Jacques Legree. I, b- I believe that Legree died thinking that he was innocent and only committed the, uh, the sin of adulter- adultery. Because, like you pointed out, that scene when they're having the party in Pierre's bedroom, and he chases that girl around the table, and they, they duplicate that same kind of scenario with Marguerite and, and Jacques. For Jacques, what he did to Marguerite was no different from what he did to the girl at the party, um, which was more obviously more consensual. For him, that's so, that's normal, because... When he's talking to Pierre, uh, when Pierre questions him about the the accusation, he says, I mean, she did the normal protestations, but she's just a lady. She's only she was only protesting because she's a lady and she's supposed to. But she didn't really mean her protestations. So, the way I, she she really wanted to have the the adulterous affair. So, I look at Legree as thinking that he he died thinking that he was innocent and thinking that the only sin he committed was adultery.
1: I I think I agree with both of you because I think there's a symbol for both Matt Damon and Adam Driver's character of the symbol of a horse that they keep going back to with and, oh, yeah. and kind of that parallel between the horse uh, as property, as something that will produce offspring and be assets to them. And they view women in very similar ways as property, as essentially as assets and liability. So regardless if he believes that he assaulted Marguerite or not, he still views, and much like Legree does, views Marguerite as this uh, something that is less than human. And so even if he did think it was rape, uh, he still doesn't view her as human, basically, as something that someone that is equal to him. And, and so that's a big part of the movie that I think is a, a through line. I do, there is a literal scene where it's more obvious of Matt Damon's character where he's, where he knocks the one horse off the other horse. But Adam Driver at one point is uh, walking through, I forget who's, I think it was his perspective. And he was trying to pick a horse to go onto, And then finally he picks one with his friend who's been walking with the whole movie. And then he sees Marguerite like, you know, 20 yards from him with one of her friends. And he's starting to look at her and talk about her as if he was just talking about one of the horses too. And so again, it's just another, uh, another connection to how he is like othering woman.
3: Yeah, and there's so many layers to this movie too, right? Because there's this idea of, who, uh, basically seeing different people's reality, but then also like layers being with within that reality. Because, uh, you know, regardless, we see that Jacques uh, Legree rapes uh, Marguerite, but then we also see marital rape, um, you know, from Matt Damon's character uh, de Carouge. Mm-hmm. and so it's it's interesting to see like this different idea of reality, but regardless like the system or like the laws are not, uh, you know, supporting Marguerite. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think I, I want to talk about Jodie Comer and her performance. Cause like you said, I think, you know, she gives one of the best performances and I, that was a reason also I was really sad that this didn't get recognition or people didn't really go see this movie or it wasn't talked about enough because her her performance is amazing. And, yeah. um, something I find so interesting with this movie is that when we get to the truth, we get to the last act. It's like we, that's the first time we see her as a full character, you know, in the first two acts, the first two chapters, we're seeing everything from the lens of Damon and driver's characters where it's, it's almost like she's impressed by them, you know, (laughs) the, um, or that, that she's even interested in, in what they're saying. And then we, when we get to her, Point of view, we're we're seeing her actually like make decisions and and just talk, and it's like you're seeing a whole new character.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it is a crime that she wasn't nominated. Yeah, it is really that good of a performance because she's so often relegated to someone like who cannot speak. She's othered. She is looked at as less than human. So therefore, when she walks into a room full of men, she's so often not given a voice. And even in the Matt Damon's perspective, like at the first act even though he does seem to, in his mind, love his wife, he's still not asking about her. He's still not wondering if she's okay. She's often forced to like live in isolation and much like his horses and forcing them to right, be Right Like inside. he's like, I
3: forbid you to, to leave the grounds. Right.
1: Exactly. And so she creates a lot of layers in her performance as Marguerite without even saying much in certain mm-hmm. moments of the movie, which is incredible.
2: Yeah. in the, the one thorough, thoroughbred scene um, that we see from each perspective is the kiss of Legree and Marguerite. The, where on Jean de Carouge says, "Hey, offer, show him the good faith of Halske de Carouge and give my old friend a kiss." And we see the kiss in three different perspectives: first from Jacques, then from Legris. I mean, first from Jean's, then then from Jacques, and then from Marguerite. And I thought it was such mm-hmm. great acting from each performer to show this just slight nuance, different kind of kiss, and they all have different meanings for each character. In that party scene, the, the party for their friend, his friend's, the, be- the birth of his friend's son, that's a vital moment for the film because that's the first instance of Legree thinking that he is uh, building some kind of connection with Marguerite, thinking that she's flirting with him, thinking that she wants him um, with lust, uh, completely misreading all of her interpretations where she's being friendly to keep the peace, which she tells to, to Jean, Jean, Jacques when they're dancing. She says it's better to smile, and be nice than to have like good ill will towards one another. That scene I mm-hmm. think is so important for the, the way each story and each perspective um, carries on for the rest, of the, sto- the rest of the film. And I thought it was such great acting, especially from Jodie Comer. Her reaction to each kiss is just subtly different, but it has so much impact in each story. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. In
3: each, in each situation you can see that she's uncomfortable. But it does focus in the second chapter, uh, Gris, where he is interpreting it like, oh, she, you know, uh, maybe is interested in me. Or just even the idea of him having a conversation with her, which didn't even happen in her, you know, her scenario, her yeah. reality. Yeah. And I think so. I want to I do want to talk about Ben Affleck, though, too, um, as Count Pierre. I think (laughs) this might be the
1: best Ben Affleck performance. He's great. He's phenomenal. It's so good. Yeah. He's
3: just like this totally indifferent, like aristocrat bringing all this (laughs) humor to the movie. You know, he's just like focused on drinking and status. And, um, there's this, I think my favorite scene is when he asks, uh, driver's character if he should wear the gold shoe (laughs) or the sandal. And uh, Driver goes the gold, and Pierre goes, indeed. indeed. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so good. I think that Ben and, Affleck brought so
2: much comedy that it needed. Yeah. Yeah,
3: and especially, I I think, I can't remember if one of you said it already, but when Damon kneels down to, like, kiss his ring, you know, when he, he comes back from battle, uh, you know, he... Ben Affleck says like closer and that must've been such a funny scene for them to both, <laughs> you know, they're yeah, just like yeah. messing with each you other. You can see Close it in Ben's up. face. He's
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's enjoying every moment of that.
3: Yeah. Um, but also I think, I don't know if um, you'll have any other funny scenes you want to talk about, but I, maybe we'll get into them later, but his character is also really interesting on rewatch because he's basically like a metaphor of the power in society. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like the, the idea of, people in power often men making like legislative decisions about like women's autonomy and their fate. And I think it's interesting because I didn't catch until this watch when he tells driver, Hey, like you've been accused of this thing, but then they laugh because he's like, Oh no worries. Like I am the court. He's like, I'm the Lord. So I got this. Yeah. 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 It's like the corruption. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because he, he's a great example of when the, the mom says to Damon, um, you know, there is no right, there's only the power of men, which was a, a great line by Harriet Walter um, as Nicole de Bouchard, who's also a succession mom. Oh, out out oh yeah oh, right. oh my god <laughs> nice the mom is great <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: I, I do really love the hierarchy that Ben Affleck's character kind of presents as Pierre I, I do really think it's interesting to they don't talk about it that explicitly like the whole like feudal system they kind of imply a lot of like issues with taxation there's like this religious national identity war going on in the background with the hundred years war like but I, I do like how Pierre is trying to like distance himself from all of that and he's really just trying to like cover himself in all of these like uh material items Mm -hmm. and trying to from what i can tell maybe even stealing basically people's money um and not exactly doing what taxes are supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. so uh, i I do really love how he plays that it's really great
2: and he he is so he's so charming but there is a there is a complexity to him because he's one of the only characters in the area who can read latin so he's well educated he's an intelligent intelligent person but Mm -hmm. i think that he's gotten this piece of power because his cousin is the king, where he can just live life however he sees it, and I think the scenes with Ben Affleck were really necessary to the film, um, a- adding some levity, letting the audience like take a breath and just laugh at a joke every once in a while, and it added a great yeah. balance to the film. And like we said earlier, I think if they showed that in the trailer, it would have. I think the trailer made it seem like too dark and serious. Where it, it, there are some really good laugh out loud jokes in this film from Pierre, and but also I like how. Pierre has grown to really love uh, Legree as a friend, and uh, he trusts him. He hires him to help put his affairs in order, rewards him with first the land that was originally part of Marguerite's dowry, and then he he promotes him to captain, uh, the captain's ship that was supposed to go to uh, Descourouges. And so mm-hmm. he and Ben even sells that, that despair he feels when Legree dies on the battlefield in front of everyone. You can just see... Yes he's he looks so upset and just like he lost a like a brother in a lot of ways and ben subtly performed that perfectly
3: and i think the the king i love that you brought the king up <laughs> such a funny like king joffrey a uh, small piece of humor also to to go in there yeah. um who's so giddy about violence every time it comes up i i think when they're deciding the duel or he's announcing it he says something like you know, if anyone tries to, to flee, they'll be executed and everyone gasps and it just, yeah. just shows him smiling, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I think like the, just the idea of the humor, you're right. I think people probably, at least I didn't expect that going in. Um, but it adds a really great layer of the idea of how basically like there are all these like silly um, vibes that we associate with kind of historical epics and the men in power and his heroic, uh, kind of character arcs, mm-hmm. but then it flips it on, on it, its head, that kind of archetype to show that like these men are actually silly, but have still so much power and it's scary at times, like in the movie. So it's a really interesting, uh, kind of tonal shift there.
1: You know, I would love to see this is just quick before we jump into our extra credits, because I'm excited to hear everybody's but I would love to see Ben Affleck continue some of this dry humor elsewhere, maybe under some less serious movies, because he does tend to go into more serious movies and outside of the Batman IP stuff like I would be so interested to see him in like a, a Wes Anderson movie. If you told me like Wes Anderson cast Ben Affleck in a movie, I'm there opening night. He's, wow, he's so funny like in Good Will Hunting. Good Will he's Hunting so funny. is funny, but also yeah. like
2: movies like Dogma and Jane and Bob. Yes. Those movies, yes. he's really funny. He's got cameos in that. He's got cameos in the new Clerks movie. So I think he loves doing stuff like that, but obviously, you know, he likes those big ass paychecks as well. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> but, but I love when he does comedy. He's so funny. He's such yeah. a funny guy. Agreed. He, he's trying to own Dunkin Donuts so
1: aren't we all <laughs> Re- retainer 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 <laughs> yeah, your art
2: prospects will be better with us. Uh, $20 in my pocket right now well Will,
1: uh, I'm
0: not exactly sure what you mean we've already offered you a position nobody in this town works without a retainer guys you think you can find somebody who does we tell you you have my blessing but I think we all know that person's not going to represent you as well as I can
3: Will, our offer
1: is $84,000 a year, plus
0: Retainer. Panel.
1: Retainer. You want us to give you cash right now? <laughs> 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 All right, let's get to the extra credits of The Last tool. So this is where we each choose what we think deserves more recognition or extra credit for the movie. Your extra credit can be a scene, performance, theme, score, camera angle, basically anything that you feel amplifies the film's greater messages. And to make it more interesting, each person will choose only one extra credit. So, James, Anthony, you're our guests. Would one of you like to go first?
2: I'll go first. Yeah, go for it, pal. So I chose the sound design of the, the sexual nice. assault scene for both perspectives. And it wasn't until I watched it a third time where I noticed the difference. And so Ridley Scott and the actors obviously perform the scenes differently. Obviously, in Legree's version, um, she's playfully kind of running away, but kind of in a way, from his perspective, leading her on. And um, and then the second version, Marguerite's version, she is... she, And also, I loved how when she said to both men, get out of my house... He thinks at first that he was she was only talking to his friend, and then he yells at his friend to get out. But then clearly in, in the second version, she clearly told both men to get out of the house. But he, also, he just misinterpreted <laughs> yeah. what she was saying. But the sound design I found really interesting, uh, especially from after that sequence, going up the steps and into the bedroom. Now, if you watch the scene again, in Legree's version, when they, he follows her up the steps, the footprints are kind of light and kind of playful. Also, her shoes, she kicks her shoes off when she goes up the steps. Um, and then when you compare it to Marguerite's version, when she she uh, trips up the steps, that's why her shoes fall off, but also the footsteps are much louder, especially Legree's. Uh, Legree's footsteps in the first version are just kind of moderate, but in the second version, he's stomping up the steps, and it's, you can feel the fear that she fears because the sound design is different, and he's, his, his force moving up the steps is much louder, and then the sound design of the a sexual assault is much more intense as well, also, the way that uh, Jodie Comer perfectly uh, performs the nuances of in the first scene in Legree's version. And the way that Legree's interpreting it is that she's, in a way, moaning for of pleasure. But in Marguerite's version, the sounds are not moans. They're cries. They're squeals. Uh, they're groans of pain and weeping. And I love how the sound design, along with the performances of, of the actors, completely give this. Did the same scene, completely different interpretations for the audience as well. And I think it was, it was very subtle, uh, but it is so effective when it's done this well. Great extra credit. Thanks, now I, man. Now I have to rewatch. Well, they, they did shoot it differently. They did shoot it differently, especially the first interaction yeah. where he tells her, does he, know, do you, does he know that you are the most exquisite woman? And so in Reed's perspective, he says it really tr- like beautifully and like brushes her cheek with his hand. Like, Mm -hmm. and perfectly times it, and he's very confident and slow when he speaks. But in in Marguerite's version, he's kind of nervous, and he's a bit loud. And he says that exact same line, does he know you to be the most exquisite woman? And there's got to be six feet between them. And so it's a completely different um, version of events, subtly performed, and, and the framing is just slightly different. All right, I have an extra credit. It's more of a thematic one. And it's what I guess I would say is the futility of the truth where obviously from a legal standpoint, Marguerite telling her truth and speaking out against the sexual assault was so important. And we're still remembering it 700 years later almost. Obviously, that's so important. But the futility mm-hmm. of the truth in this world at this time in the 1300s was it 1338 AD, something like that, you know, in this high, heavily dominant patriarchal society, religious society where it doesn't matter what the truth is for Marguerite's legal perspective and surviving perspective because what it comes down to in the eyes of the country of France and the church and the the courts is it's going to come down to God in their perspective making this decision of what the truth is, not Marguerite. It's going to come down to God, and God will justly show the truth by the results of the duel. So even though Marguerite has spoken her truth, spoken the truth, it doesn't matter for her survival legal standpoint because in the patriarchal perspective, it's up to God what the truth is by showing us who will win the duel, which is absurd, ironic, and tragic.
0: If your husband were to lose the duel, it would demonstrate God's judgment and reveal you for having borne false witness. I understand. I'm certain your husband told you the penalty for bearing false witness against a man by a woman in the case of rape is that you are to be stripped and shorn fitted by the neck with an iron collar lashed to a wooden post and summarily burned alive Lady Marguerite It is quite common for the accused to burn for 20 to 30 minutes before they are dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's really sad, and unfortunately, that's still something that is happening today.
3: Yeah, I that's a great extra credit because mine's really, I think, connected. So I, I'll just go ahead and go for it too. Um, my extra credit is the idea that the last duel, the fight itself, is like still about the men, you know. And I think we talked about that a, a little bit earlier too, but. Legree's lawyer or counsel I'm not sure you know what his role totally was um, said that it's not a crime against a woman it's a crime against a man's property against you know de Carouge. and right before the duel happens we have that scene where Matt Damon says you know I'm risking my life for you to Marguerite and Marguerite responds by saying you know you're risking your life so you can fight your enemy and save your what pride happened to
0: me should you lose this duel? You knew, and you didn't tell me. God
4: will not punish those who tell the truth.
0: My fate and our child's fate will be written not by God's will, but by which old man will die first.
4: How dare you speak to me this way. What if I'd a lose?
0: I begged you to find another way, and now I might be burned alive.
4: I am risking my life for you.
0: Hmm. You are risking my life so you can fight your
3: enemy and save your pride and that could render our child an orphan or did you not think of that or, or depending on who wins um, she either gets to keep her life or get burned alive and i think that kind of represents the stakes of women disclosing uh, assault you know globally like the threat of shame violence or just being believed but after you know Damon's character kills Driver's character, um, he and Marguerite are you know riding horses through the city, and we have this really interesting shot where he is basically like accepting all the cheers, and we have that swelling music, kind of what we're used to seeing at the end of an epic, um, and then it cuts out, and we just have Marguerite, and there's no music. Um, and it's just emptiness, right? And it kind of is representing that she doesn't, it's not going to, things aren't going to change for her after this, just because Matt Damon won, right? She's still married, um, or no, sorry, not Matt Damon, Matt Damon's character won, right? <laughs> or <Poor> Matt. <laughs> yeah, we know um, Matt would
2: have done it in real life too. He would have won that fight. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, but the idea that she basically is still going to be married to De Carrouge and, you know, he is going to continue this like hero of his own story. Like I'm the protagonist of my own story. Um, And so it was interesting because it's still just regardless, a a story about these men fighting um, in the end and the, the story still at the end, even though we're seeing her truth um, is, is, is Dig Carrouge accepting this idea of him being like finally valued and the hero of the story at the end, uh, and not even like seeing her. Right. And I think especially when, uh, day or not day lookery look Wait, de Legree. 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 Legree, Thank Legree. you. <laughs> a Legree. lot of that. Legree, Thank you. Stabs uh, de Carrouge. I was like, oh, okay, good. Like maybe they'll both die, you know? Um, <laughs> and because basically she's going, just going to keep experiencing, um, you know, all these issues from from the situation that she's in as a woman in the 14th century. So um, I just wanted to give extra credit to that because I thought. Like you're saying, the idea that, okay, God's fate is going to decide this, and she doesn't really have any legal standing, the movie obviously is unfortunately talking about issues that we still see globally today, like, you know, woman's bodily autonomy, or violence towards woman, or woman not being believed, and the stakes of like disclosing sexual assault or violence, even a thousand years, you know, after the last duel took place.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting that, like, we're all picking – I guess it it shows how good this movie is that we're all picking an extra credit that specifically has to do with a woman's experience because Jodie Comer, Comer, even though she's so great in this film, she probably has the least amount of work when it comes to, like, when you look to – Matt Damon, and when you look to Adam Driver, like in terms of the dialogue in this movie, she gets the least amount to do, unfortunately. So the fact that we're all kind of pulling away from this, that Ridley Scott successfully made a movie that is highlighting what women have to go through in the 1300s and 1400s and the scary connection that is to the modern world, Mm -hmm. is kind of where my extra credit is because I think what deserves more recognition about this movie is the fact that it's just very transparent. And that might seem kind of basic to any listeners, but I feel that most directors would sensationalize this movie. And I was really, really worried. And I mean, obviously there's action moments in the last 20 minutes are like kind of an epic sequence, especially Mm -hmm. because you hate both of these men and what they've done. And so you want them both to die, like what you're talking about. And it was very satisfying to see what happened to Adam Driver. You're still kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm left a little bit uncomfortable at the end just knowing that this script could have gone to a different director who would have maybe exploited this. So that's what my extra credit goes to. I think it's, it's kind of ridiculous to see how people are dismissing this movie as an issue about women's rights that we already know. We don't yeah, need any other films. Yeah, that was a lot of films. feedback when
3: it came out. People were like, don't we really? already know that this issue exists? Well, yeah. yeah. Well,
1: we were trying to, that's like right as soon as we were starting this pod. And I remember us trying to think about what was our first movie? The first movie we talked about in this podcast was Licorice Pizza. Mm-hmm. And we almost did the, nice. the Last the last Duel, which we love PTA. Licorice Pizza is a great film. Uh, but, you know, we, we looked at uh, The Last Duel and the reaction was kind of like, well, you know, whose perspective were you taking? And, and that was very confusing. And especially in a time with our country it's like we just like roe v wade was just overturned and women needing control over their bodily autonomy is such a, a, a universal issue a global issue but specifically in our country now we're going back to that issue and now women's rights are left to a more narrow group of men at a state level and this movie is about like supporting women's rights and i think that anybody seeing it as something that is ancient and that we don't need to talk about this anymore and it needs to be kind of moved on. I think those people must be coming from like isolated bubbles, like culturally or something in our country, because I, I feel like this is something that is an issue that needs to be highlighted even more. And I would love to see these kind of stories being shown in movies if they're supporting women. And I think that's why it gets, and needs more recognition is because it is incredibly straightforward in its message. I think the conversation around the movie was so divisive at one point. I know that Ridley Scott, gave and he had an interview where he was asked about whether or not he intended people to be unclear about whose perspective to trust the most in the movie and he was like what the hell are you talking (laughs) about he was like what says
2: the truth the third act is the truth yeah exactly
1: and i think that's how much our subconscious has been manipulated by hollywood and entertainment and like what um and Maybe just like the way men and women's relationships have been written and the kind of like toxic dynamics between the relationship between men and women. And Ridley Scott was like, You have to be a fucking idiot to not believe Marguerite. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. but he I like told you it's
3: the truth. He yeah. literally said that like yeah. in an
1: interview, which is the best Ridley Scott I stuff love him, ever yeah. when he's straightforward like that. And it's not exactly a unifying message for a director of a movie to be like, you have to be an idiot to think that there's multiple perspectives of this movie. (laughs) But that is the kind of attitude and pressure that we kind of need right now, especially because that was before all the Roe v. Wade stuff in Mm -hmm. the United States. Well, before it happened. So I give extra credit to this movie just being incredibly transparent and who is telling the truth and for it to not really give a shit about other like the other perspectives too much. Um, so I think, I think it needs more recognition because of that.
2: I was going to say, I like how you brought up that shot of him being celebrated by the huge crowd and it cuts back to Marguerite because that ending is actually a perfect way of translating what happened. And if you, if I think maybe people looked at that, didn't really understand, maybe they thought they were glorifying De Carouge at the end of the film. But Mm -hmm. what he does is he does these two shots very wide of him being celebrated and, and taking in the crowd and, and their cheers and then that's that's shown in real time. Um, and then he cuts to Marguerite slow motion and you only hear her breathing. And then the sound of mm-hmm. the crowd is extremely, st- extremely muzzled. You can barely hear it, but you hear her slow, her breathing while it's filmed in slow motion and then the slow fade to black. And that translates exactly like this is not a heroic ending. This is a tragic ending to the story. Luckily. He died in the Crusades, and she was able to raise her son without ever marrying again. But before that, ep- before that um, epilogue with the son, that ended as a tragedy. You know, it's not heroic. The final shot is Marguerite slow motion fade to black. So mm-hmm. I think people maybe even misinterpret what Ridley Scott did with the the ending of the story. I think most movies today are are not challenging audiences anymore, and audiences don't really want it anymore but and when they finally face a challenging movie, they don't really know how to interpret it mm-hmm. and I think you know a lot of big movies you know they're not putting people in that position to really think when they're watching a film mm-hmm. and they're not used to it, which is unfortunate that's probably true too, yeah, I agree,
3: yeah, and I think that's interesting what you brought up uh trey too about the idea that we have had this kind of Matt Damon, um, or, you know, Dick Cruz first arc of the story, like so much where we, I actually was treating it as, okay, this is the movie and I'm getting to know this character and kind of the toxic dynamics, um, around just relationships. And especially because we've had so many, um, you know, uh, men are who are protagonists, uh, we also have a lot of really flawed, um, and unhealthy ways of looking at just like romantic encounters, sexual encounters in movies themselves. And I think, um, the way that Ridley Scott is so straightforward, even in each chapter, he still is showing like, um, even though, you know, Legree is, miss or is in his own delusional world where he thinks that Marguerite is taking off her shoes and somehow like getting undressed to go upstairs. Um, that regardless, we know in that situation, no matter what choices she's making that, um, or where, where the sound is, uh, that it is still rape. It's still sexual assault. And so I think the, the straightforward, aspect of the story is needed because of just how we have one been taught to see movies in general, where it's important that we don't misinterpret the second act or we're not on Adam drivers or it it just even maybe like asking whose reality is true, which I Mm -hmm. think, um, you know, is, is a a problem from other, other movies, but also just like the kind of climate that we're in today. Like it's very important that he is straightforward. And so I, I like that too, because I did see, a lot of feedback from critics saying like, don't we already kind of know this message to like Believe Woman? Don't we already have like the Me Too movement going on? And um, I just thought that was so weird uh, to, to see that feedback because I think it's, I, I wish more movies uh, were, you know, talking about issues like The Last Duel.
1: It must be weird for Ridley Scott too, because he literally made a scene like the, uh, the Adam Driver character scene with Marguerite um, where... You are seeing these perspectives and are kind of wondering, okay, this seems very toxic. Okay, now this is sexual assault. He already made a sequence like that in the original Blade Runner, which has been like heavily criticized with Deckard. And he's talked about that since then and talked about how uh, Deckard and other humans are othering androids. I mean, or sorry, um, not androids, but what am i thinking replicants, um, replicants. Re- thank yeah. you thank you replicants the ridley scott like fans are going to come for me on that <laughs> uh, i am also a fan um but yeah well, so- they're called androids in the novel so it's okay to call them yes androids. that's right thank you philip dick we appreciate your work uh so yeah i think it's interesting that that ridley scott kind of already made a sequence like this that people have been arguing about for a long time and he's trying to show the way that humans are othering uh, find ways to other people and create rigid hierarchies between one another. And just like in Blade Runner, we have that in the last duel. And still, you still got people being like, "Well, whose perspective are we supposed to believe?" And he was like, "What the?"
3: Yeah, he was like, what? "What are we doing yeah.
1: here?" Um, what
2: kind so- of dumb question what is that?
0: Yeah, Ridley, I was going to start with you because when I left uh, the screening, I felt confident that Marguerite's take was the truthful one, and I left feeling that the final chapter was intended to tell the viewer that her reality was the reality. But then I overheard a conversation behind me between, from two people who had seen asking which of the three stories they believed. And I got a text later that night from my friend who was also in there asking "Did which of the characters I believed. And that sort of surprised
4: me. Does that surprise you? And are you quite pleased? It's I'm bloody amazed. How stupid can they be? Sorry. I mean, are you joking? OK, yeah. so that is that a good answer? Yes, I, no, I don't understand.
0: <laughs> oh, I was going to add, but are you pleased it's kind of sparking that conversation,
4: even if you think it's stupid? No, I think there should be absolutely no doubt. With the honesty of... How Lady Carouge is and who she is. And don't forget, when you watch the film, whether there's an audience to her innermost self or not, we are seeing who she is. Mm. You've got to pay attention to who she is to know whether it's true or not. Mm. Right? So when she's in a room with the mother, with the maid, in the paddock, you, you see her private, her private. A person who she is, that should tell you who, yeah. who's telling you. So it. these
1: are all great extra credits. I'm interested to hear extra, extra credits. Kelsey, I know you had a few that you wanted to hit on first. What do you got?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think we already talked a, a lot about like the parallels of discourse today, but um, I thought just like even the shots uh within the, the church, or I'm not sure where they were in that kind of courtroom scene where everyone is taking this piece of evidence that she called the handsome as you know, an idea that she could uh, be lying. Um, I thought those were all really great moments and, and scenes and mm-hmm. especially also where Adam driver goes to his confession, um, which is the cut right after the assault and the, the priest or whoever he's talking to is saying, you know, that, Oh, she was a temptress and it was, uh, like Adam and Eve. And this is like the devil's work. Uh, and, he also says he commits a sin of adultery, a crime against his friend, which again is, uh, you know, Damon's character, which yeah. I I, th- I thought all of the the dialogue in each chapter of the story um, deserved extra, extra credit. And also the lawyer, his counsel saying like, just deny, 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 just act like nothing happened because ultimately it's your word against, uh, you know, Damon's character and and we'll end up maybe winning.
1: Yeah. And that goes to, I think Anthony's point about like the way that, uh, um, Adam driver's character sees like the interpretation of his sexual assault using like religion as a hedge against like trying to actually like uh, self reflect about what he's done is really interesting in that sequence mm-hmm. where he kind of like is trying to be forgiven for adultery. Yeah,
3: he, like immediately uh, is trying to absolve himself and yeah, still delusional. Yeah. yeah.
1: What about you guys? Any other
2: extra, extra credits? I love the opening where we open the film with uh, cross cutting of Marguerite De Carrouge and Le Gris are preparing for the fi- the last duel. They're preparing for the duel where the men are being fitted in their armor and Marguerite is being fitted into possibly the final piece of clothing she'll ever wear. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. I thought it was ter- terrific how they cross-cut these three things together. Uh, it was really a beautiful, subtle, and nuanced way to open the film uh, with some quiet um, character moments. And you also get hints of the characters as well. You see she's clearly frightened. With Jodie Comer's performance, you can see that Adam Driver is clearly anxious and angry the way he's telling the men, tighter. Tita," uh, I, I love that opening. And then we get to the battle, which is great. But seeing all three characters being dressed into their outfits for that day, I think was a great way to open. I got two more. I got Authenticity and Brutality. I think Ridley, like I said earlier on in the episode, that he's he's huge on authenticity and details. And I think Gladiator is a film which is really important because it, he brings so much historical accuracy to it, like what ancient Rome really looked like. You know, it, it would look more like a Middle Eastern country than it would what people might think from a history book, and they nailed that I think so well in Gladiator with the instruments, the the culture, the the attire, everything like that. The musical instruments, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, and what Hans Zimmer used a lot of the music that he used a lot of Middle Eastern instruments in that score for. Gladiator. And then also the last duel, the authenticity of the wardrobe, the the battles, the, the the sequences were incredible. Production design, but you know, then the brutality of the fighting and. And the blood and the the swords and the mm-hmm. the wounds, it was so brutal. And like five times, you, I caught myself going, "Oh my god!" Yeah. It was just like yeah. a we knife jumped up to the theater. Like once. some of the yeah. deaths were intense, like a knife going all the way down someone's skull, and even just Carrouge uh, just kneeing the knife into Legree's mouth at the yeah. end of the film it was brutal because that's what war was like and and i love medieval films that really depict it really well the king does a tremendous job of what it's really like to fight in a suit of armor an intense one where it's very exhausting and it takes a long time and there are few vulnerabilities to a to the body when you're in a full suit of armor with chainmail like that fight that timothy chalamet's character has in the, in the first act of that film when he's trying to protect his brother, that scene is, is exhausting to watch because of its yeah. accuracy and authenticity. And I think they nailed it with this film with the brutality and authenticity all combined.
3: Oh, that mud scene is so good.
2: It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's
1: awesome. And the king, yeah. Also, before we forget about the king, that's actually a great double feature with this movie. I'd probably watch it second because this movie is so sad at times in The Last tool. But uh because the king of uh the king in the last duel, his son is actually uh Robert Pattinson's character, I believe.
3: You mean wait, oh, is it Robert Pattinson's wow. oh oh the king So the, of the little last the little boy yeah. in this movie, the teenager yeah. oh, okay. king the Joffrey. in the last duel, yeah. yeah,
1: the Joffrey character in this movie. Yeah, his son in actual like in history, his it's son Robert is Robert wow. Pattinson's character. Wow. I believe That's somebody's amazing. gonna come That's so interesting.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> That's double so feature cool.
3: Yeah. And also, I think what was interesting in the the last duel scene, uh, besides like those gory aspects, you're right, that I, I was in on, there was kind of like an interstellar like synthy music. I don't know if you all noticed when mm-hmm. they're fighting at the beginning and at the end that I really liked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I like that. It too. sounded like organ. Yeah. It sounded like there was some organ or some synth for sure. Yeah. The so one extra credits I want
1: to touch on, I, th- I think I just brought it up with religion, is Ridley Scott continuously coming back to the way that institutions, uh, the way that powerful people can man- manipulate institutions to um, make people submissive to like a very unfair inequitable hierarchy and he keeps coming back to this in all of his films i mean we love prometheus he talks about it a lot but mm-hmm. he's done kingdom of heaven he's done a ton of movies where there's always some kind of justification for colonialism some kind of justification for genocide some kind of justification for othering people and their identities and there are so many smart decisions he makes in this movie him and his cinematographer where they'll put a cross in the background of a scene that is like really important or they'll show like one of the original, sh- one of the first shots of Matt Damon's character is when he is staring at the sword at the beginning, when he's going to fight the Gris and oh, behind yeah. him as a cross. And there's this great layering of, of uh, what he looks at is like his duty or his responsibility, which is this sword, which is to stick up for his like manhood and behind him are the powers that be who are controlling God in his life and controlling religion in his life and f- forcing him t- and to be submissive in this way and to kind of give up any kind of free will and just make this this decision where he doesn't need to make it and become the person that he is. And so I, I just, I love the fact that Ridley Scott is again, pulling on these strings um and the way that the powerful people that be they control others and i think it's just really impressive it's very difficult to do and i don't
2: think yeah sorry sorry to interrupt if you look at that scene again he also pans the camera he tracks it to um where the sword hilt is in the foreground and is in the shape of the crucifix because of the way they shot it Mm. see that's that's
1: really great stuff i mean it's that's very difficult to do and I don't know if I picked that up on first watch, but just recently I, I noticed that. Yeah, I didn't
3: notice it either. And uh, when you pointed it out, you're like, oh, there's like a cross behind uh, de Carugia's character all the time and this idea of like justifying um, maybe like violence or what he understands his place in this institution to be. And, and I guess, like you said, that, that justification that Ridley comes back to in a lot of his movies. Um, but also Marguerite, when she is... The first thing we see her, she's in the church and watching her father mm-hmm. and de Carrouge talk about basically, uh, the, what he's going to get from the marriage. Um, and she looks up at a, a religious like figure, um, and they're in this church and I didn't know totally how to interpret that, but now I'm thinking maybe it was, she was kind of thinking the same sort of thing, like God, this God's fate idea. Yeah, is this of, my role? Is this, yeah, is, yeah, exactly. Like, was, is this, is this that what meant my, for me? Um, yeah. Kind of idea, um, or this idea of, like, what the institutions are and um that that contradiction like really showing that through symbols in the movie
1: yeah and de in the first war they go through at the beginning of the movie too when he's not supposed to like go through this battle which we find out through adam driver's perspective later his character's perspective but when they go in battle in this first major battle in the beginning of the movie and all these characters have gotten killed on their side on the french side and they go back to the military barracks afterwards and they're all drinking and like excited that they won but a lot of people have died and in this tent with the this candle lit behind it is a cross and it's Matt Damon's character talking about how like they they had to fight they had to go to battle even though we later find out that they weren't even supposed to go to battle and that uh Ben Affleck's character is pissed off that uh that oh, he did yeah. this um so they're
2: supposed to hold the bridge yeah
1: yeah so a lot, all those subtleties I, I really I really love what about does Pierre say
3: he's like he's no fun you yeah know? <laughs> he's, no, he's no fun <laughs> I love it
1: not not a fun guy all right any others before we get going
2: no I'm good, good? yeah
1: all right let's everyone did a great job yeah, yeah, that was, was really fun to hear about credits. I want to end today by asking you all a question about Ridley Scott's filmography because I was trying to uh, think about, I mean, one day I would love to do a Ridley Scott like draft or ranking on oh this podcast, God, yeah. but I was trying to mm-hmm. think about, that probably will be five hours, but I was trying to think about <laughs> what, where does this movie fit in these past two decades for him? And I was going through the movies. Obviously, you guys are big fans of Gladiator and we love Gladiator too. And I was looking at them like Gladiator Uh, maybe you could say, uh, the Martian and you could say, uh, Black Hawk down, depending on who loves that kingdom of heaven has its fans. American gangster is very good, but very long. I love Prometheus, but I was looking at this list and I'm like, is the last Duel* top five Ridley Scott movie of the past 20 years. Hmm. And so I think, I think I came down to like my personal opinion, which is, yeah, I think it might be like the fifth or fourth best movie he's made out of this 20 almost 20 movies he's made in the past now 22 23 years and he's got napoleon coming out next year so do you guys think that this is like a a top five top 10 movie for ridley scott in the past few decades because if it is that means i'm expecting big things for joaquin phoenix and napoleon trey always does yeah at the end of podcasts
3: i'm like i can't ranking is not my specialty (laughs) i can't like put a place put a rank a a letter on something yeah yeah
2: (laughs) For me, it definitely is top five, and it may be even number two, only behind Gladiator, oh, um, wow, yeah. and then also uh, Kingdom of Heaven is up there. Ironically, all, all <laughs> historical ancient epics, yeah. and then Black Hawk Down is really phenomenal as well. I think that The Last Duel might be a second best film that he's made in the in the in this century. I think Gladiator wow. is a special movie that um, will probably be his best uh, of the century that he's made. Um, But what's crazy is, like, he also, in the previous century, he has Alien and Blade Runner, which is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's nuts. It's just those (laughs) three movies as a director is insane. But I do think that The Last Duel, after watching it for a third time, I find it extremely impressive. The Kingdom of Heaven has, I think, the best filmmaking uh, of his career. Mm -hmm. It's really just a standout of uh, directing, cinematography, and production design. It's just a monumental uh, achievement in film history. Uh, but I think that this film has enough of that and also better uh, writing and story. So I'll put that, I put it over Kingdom of Heaven, but I put Gladiator uh, as number one. Yeah, this century, I have it number three for Ridley. I have Gladiator, The Martian, I have number two from The century. I think that yeah, movie is Martian's phenomenal. Yeah. So well made. Excellent book to film adaptation. And then I have The Last Duel, followed by Black Hawk Down, American Gangster. But then the top two movies of, his, of my life for him, it's, it goes Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator for his top three in filmography. Objectively, like not just my favorites, because Gladiator is my favorite, but I think those three are the top three of his career.
3: Yeah, mm. I can't put a hard ranking on it, but I think it is in his top five for me.
1: Yeah, it's definitely top five for me. Like I said, I'm a Prometheus head, so I can't do anything about that. But <laughs> Prometheus I, it's def- is great. It's definitely Yeah, it's a, it's a top five movie for me. It's just really crazy. Again, I just want to emphasize we're talking about a director who's 85 years old. That's all. That's yeah. just that to me.
2: Um, there is a right. there's a whole community of hate against Prometheus. It's it's pretty absurd. People yeah. like despise that movie and attack it. I think it's such a well made movie. It's so well executed. Yeah, and the yeah. themes
3: are really interesting too.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's like questioning
1: everything. I just said in my extra extra credits about God. Like he's going he's going full cynical ridley scott in that movie and i love it and i think it's i think it's him not choosing between blade runner and alien that is just pissing people off in that movie where they're like just pick one man pick one franchise to live in um and so uh and something i don't even bring up but like he's also a great producer like he worked really hard on the blade runner 2049 which mm-hmm. is one of our favorite movies yeah. of the past decade so like mm-hmm. even even just his producing is, is fantastic Okay, so that was the last tool. I'm hoping it can be revisited and appreciated in the future. I'm yeah. hoping podcasts like this one are able to get people to go see it. So listeners, definitely check it out. Watch it tonight if you can. I'm excited for in 10 years from now for it to be revisited and people, people are like, we really missed out on this movie. Like we had some great films last year and Coda, which won best picture, excellent movie, got me incredibly emotionally invested in that story. Mm -hmm. But if you put these two movies next to each other, they aren't really comparable in that way. So it's pretty crazy. (laughs) It wasn't even, it wasn't even nominated. So I'm not sure that'll, that'll age well. Um, okay but we did a great job thank you James and Anthony for coming on to talk about the last duel can you tell us what the Raiders of the Lost podcast has been working on on your show recently I know you guys have been busy about your film we were talking about that off mic if you want to tell listeners about that
2: yeah so we are we just wrapped production on our short film that we're making that uh, Anthony wrote and directed and I'm producing and ADing on and uh, we're hoping to have it done by the beginning of January 2023, which should be super fun. We're very excited about that. And we're also doing our first live show performance in downtown Los Angeles. You can get tickets in person to this event uh, just on our social medias, uh, Raiders of the Lost podcast everywhere, as well as at DynastyTypewriter.com. Go to the calendar January 21st. But you can also get tickets online to watch the broadcast live digitally Anywhere around the world, it's going to be nice. January twenty first, Saturday at noon. So that means everyone in the world has an opportunity. It's eight pm in the UK, seven am in Australia. So anyone can tune into that. That's moment. co slash raiders of the lost podcast to get tickets for that. So we're so excited about those two things, and Anthony can speak a little more on the short film. Yeah, we we made this film uh, last week. Actually, <laughs> we just wrapped it, <laughs> and it was just it was a phenomenal experience. It was a lot of work, but we had a, a, a real joy of an experience doing it, and we made it for submission, so we're going to be submitting it to festivals over the course of 2023, and uh, we'll see how that turns out. But we think we have something really cool on our hands, and we can't wait till we can eventually show um, the public the film after
3: festivals and yeah. everything. Yeah, we can't wait to see it. Congratulations. Yeah, it's so cool. We'll definitely Thanks. be talking
1: about it on, on this show. We'll be supporting it. And we'll appreciate be watching it. it. Um, I appreciate it. I want to talk about Hogwarts Legacy very quickly because I know we've had you guys on here for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a listener of your podcast, a big fan. I'll talk about that in a second. But specifically your show, Hogwarts Legacy, I want listeners to go follow your new pod, your new show on Hogwarts Legacy, and you guys have been trying to do all the updates and getting ready for the the release, but I need to know, are y'all bummed to hear about the release date <laughs> being pushed because it legitimately oh, ruined my day like a week or two I ago? Have a P- I have
2: have PS5, so I'm good, uh, so it's not, ba- it's not bummed for me, but unfortunately, we actually had to Stopped doing the podcast, the Hogwarts Legacy podcast, because we were just getting stretched a little too thin with oh, no. Raiders and then our live show coming up and then the short film that we're making. So it's been a crazy couple of months. And it, I thought it, we had a lot of fun doing that show. And yeah. I, it was a great business opportunity for sure. But it's just it, – we were just – I couldn't even think. Like I had no free time. It was yeah. just a little too much. And then, as you you know, when your podcast get, b- gets yeah. bigger and we film everything and make clips for TikTok, Instagram – all this work goes into it. The bigger it gets, the more work gets involved, the more opportunities come. And so like, I had to like make a tough decision. So we stopped doing the podcast like two weeks ago. And, but we're really excited about the game. We're going to play the game, obviously. Yeah. We can't yeah. wait. And we've been watching all and the also, showcases. And also it was going to affect how you played the game. Yeah. You weren't going to just enjoy it. You are going to, it was going to be like homework while you were playing. Yeah. I, no I was going to get the game. Then I'm like, we should make a podcast about it. And it was, the podcast yeah. was doing well. We were getting a lot of views and everything. It's just, it's just too much work. And plus, we want to start to, after this short film, we're going to develop more projects for 2023. And I really think we, we should focus on that instead. So there are only so many hours in a day. And it's unfortunate. It was, it was sad to see us stop doing it. But like, I wouldn't have, we wouldn't have even been able to do any content the last two weeks because of the short film we were doing. So yeah. there's just yeah. not enough time to do it, unfortunately. But well, we appreciate stuck. you tuning, yeah, into appreciate it. You yeah. tuning yeah. in. Yeah, we appreciate you tuning in and, and yeah. giving the show. We like for, doing it. Yeah. yeah. It was fun because we love Harry Potter and the franchise and yeah. the lore. And it was actually fun to like go back into the, Lore and like make kind of a, a, the assumptions or predictions about the game based on things that happen yeah. in Harry Potter fandom and because we love it, we're going to play and we're obsessed with Harry Potter, always have been and it's going to be an incredible experience to finally go to Hogwarts, finally. Yeah. But I'm yeah. sorry, we ha- we, 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 I should have told you before we had to shut it down. <laughs> oh no, no, you're no, good. yeah, but we'll
3: be playing it too so we'll, yeah. we'll have to talk.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. Oh, I was, yeah. I was literally going to email you guys when you guys were putting out an episode every day. I was like, how are you guys doing this? Because we're, like, <laughs> we're putting out like three episodes a week and then I'm like, they're putting out like their own show, they got this other show. I'm like, man, you guys I like exhausted. I said,
2: I had no free time yeah. and then we went to pre-production on the short film, I'm like, I just gotta we gotta stop doing it we and can't we do also it. we didn't want it, want it to affect Raiders and maybe diminish what we were doing with the you know our our main yeah. podcast. so we think it's better you know we're not stretched then we have more time to do our, our best we can with this show, the Raiders of the Lost podcast instead. yeah, and obviously we want to keep making films and so that's the main goal of ours as well and you know we want to focus on that as well and develop more more scripts and more projects and get that going we'll be like the scott brothers yeah we want to do at least two more short films next year <laughs> yeah. and see what happens i think that's yeah. the plan so we're going to keep pushing that and so mirror image productions is our production company that's under the raiders is done that under that umbrella so mirror image, mirror image productions will start making more short films in 2023 for sure after midnight ruin is the title of our first one
1: Wow, that's amazing. That's pretty inspirational. Uh, last question, then. I'm curious to what you two believe deserves extra credit in terms of a movie in 2022 so far. And I know you guys do updates on movies. I know you do deep dive analysis. Um, yeah, like, I feel
3: like you guys cover everything. You
1: do. I just listened to your like Martin Scorsese like deep dive recently. Like you guys do a lot of different things. But is there a movie in 2022 that you guys think deserves extra credit that you maybe like haven't uh, fully explored on your pod because you guys are doing so much with the short film and whatnot? Because for me, like. After Sun and Tar this year are like two movies that I want every listener mm-hmm. of this show to go watch when they can
2: immediately. Yeah. But is there
1: anything that jumps out to you both? For, yeah. me, for
2: me, I would say Tar because nobody yeah. saw it. And uh, right now, I, I think it's the best made film of the year. Top Gun Maverick's my favorite, just like my favorite movie. But after I walked out of Tar, I was just completely in awe with the filmmaking, with the performances, with the music, with the story um and it was it really blew me away and i was sad to see that very few people saw it i think they could i do think they could have done a better job marketing it its poster was cool but it was like a shot of cape blanchette you couldn't even see your face i mean if you're gonna sell your movie you should show cape Blanchett's face it mm-hmm. was it, you know it was like an under her like an under it's angle a right right it's a beautiful yeah. poster but, but it, yeah but like if cape Blanchett's in your movie you should put her front and center i think so i think the marketing campaign kind of misfired there but that's still not many people would have seen it. But I found Tar to be just an exquisite piece of writing, directing, and acting that was just unbelievable. And I think it's just really sad that um, not many people are seeing it. You know, It's unfortunate, but I just think we've been so inundated, especially the last three months. Even in the fall and winter, there's still so many big budget movies with people with superpowers or, or what have you. And so I think that... And it's 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 unfortunate that like incredible pieces of of cinema and art, um, it's not really striking a chord with the public anymore. Intar, the no. performance yeah. by yeah. Kate Blanchett, it's one of the best I've ever seen in my entire life. It is phenomenal. It's yeah. like up there with like Daniel Plainview and There Will Be Blood. With by uh. Hell yeah. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis, yeah, and, um, and Tar <laughs> is so relevant today with its fearless storytelling, where it's talking about this topic of you know cancel culture that a lot of people are terrified to tell stories about. So I think it's really important to watch the perspective of that film from every every uh, angle in that story, as well as Banshees of Inna Sharon is yeah. terrific. That yeah. that's phenomenal. I loved it so much, and those two performances are excellent by uh, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, as well as Martin McDonough, such a great writer director. And also, we brought up The Northman earlier. You know, movies like The Northman, uh, these huge epics, big budget, very artistic, incredible cinematography, terrific storytelling by one of our best young directors, Robert Eggers. Uh, I was really disappointed by that box office. Anthony called that box office being a a miss, and it eventually made its money back in VOD sales, and it it was Mm -hmm. very successful after the release, um, after it got out of theaters. But still, movies like that, we really need people to go see because— It's a ninety million dollar budget, just like the last duel was, but neither one even passed a hundred million dollars box office. I don't think. Maybe the Northman eventually did. Not, not, not in theaters. Not in theaters. So we we need people to see those movies because you know we we can't just have superhero movies make all the money in the box office because then all we'll ever get are superhero movies that have a budget over twenty million dollars, which we we really need people to see those movies. And the Northman was. So damn good, and I loved it so much. And Robert and it's such a is fun awesome. so theater was, experience. Yeah, yeah, it was excellent. So I would it was say, cool. I would say those three movies for me were were my uh, are my extra credits of the year. And also, just one quick extra credit: Top Gun Maverick, for showing that movies can still be an amazing experience um, mm-hmm. visually, um, audio wise, and just to sit back and really enjoy like real craftsmanship in... Uh, really take you on an adventure. Uh, I, I found that to be like I hadn't seen a movie of that scale and that feeling, uh, the propulsive quality of the filmmaking and the <laughs> extravagant nature of what I was seeing on screen. I had never seen anything like it before. And I think that obviously it's extremely successful and got so much praise and everyone loves it. But I still think it's like it's important to note that you know movies like that can still be made. It doesn't have to be CGI fest. It doesn't have to be superpowers it can just be people doing extraordinary things and just being a really fun escape just to have a great time and have an experience with a group of strangers in a big room and i think that uh it also solidified the importance of the theater experience so much and i think that it's going to it's kind of uh, going to be like the one of the most important films going forward to show studios that You can make a lot of money in the theaters. It doesn't have to be streaming only. And so I think that it was an important film with how successful it was. If you make a good goddamn movie, just make a good movie. People will watch it. With Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think uh,
1: I'm hoping that come July, Christopher Nolan will save theaters. (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't wait. I can't wait.
2: We're going to
3: Oppenheimer and Barbie double feature. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, everyone's excited about Barbie, but come on, it's Oppenheimer. And Nolan, let's go. I'm I can't really fascinated with that poster. We're, we're, yeah, we're going to see Avatar tomorrow, and I, I want—I'm very curious what the trailer looks like. My guess—I don't know if you guys have seen the trailer—but it looks like he's shooting the film on IMAX black and white, but he's going to colorize all of the flames we'll see in the film. So it's going to be the red of fire contrasting with the black and white imagery. That's my guess from the marketing and the posters. And if that's the case. I'm super excited for this, to see this visual feast that he has planned for us.
1: Yeah, there was like a thousand different layers of yellows and oranges in what he was shooting, mm-hmm. so it looked incredible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's gonna be a crazy opening day for Barbie and Oppenheimer. A crazy day for us. Four hour podcast that <laughs> night. Okay. <laughs> it's gonna be fun. James Anthony held you for too long. <laughs> Raiders of the lost podcast. Go follow them. They're one of our favorite shows to listen to. i've got updates on movie news, you have deep dive analysis episodes, you're gonna have a lot of short film talk very soon. And I wanna say you're one of like the most inspirational movie podcasts out there right now, too. Yeah. You guys built this. I Thank think you. On, I think it's only two years ago or something like that is that right june two and a half june, 20, 20, 20, yeah. june 2020 yeah so you guys have come like so far in only in only two and a half years and now you're like filmmakers so congratulations on all your success and we wish the best for you guys and everybody who's listening go support
3: yeah that was so fun to talk to you guys thanks thanks guys Thank,
4: thanks so much we Thank appreciate
2: you. it so much you guys are awesome we appreciate you <laughs>